If we've not met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are continuing our series in this fall where we have a very simple thesis. It's that whenever we respond in an unhealthy way to the world around us, that's because either we have forgotten something important about God or because we never knew it in the first place. Today we're going to go back to the dawn of the human race where we're looking at the essence of what it means to have a relationship with God and also what happens when we try to replace that essence with something else. We're going to look at this in four categories this morning. So first, we're going to think about the foundation of a relationship with God. Second, what tempts us away from that foundation. Third, the result of rejecting that foundation. And fourth, how God then responds to us. So the foundation, the temptation, the result, and God's response. Let's dive in. First, the foundation. What do we already know about God by the time we get to Genesis chapter 3? We've already learned in the early chapters that he makes things when he doesn't have to. That he pronounces them good, not because they meet some kind of need in him, but because he thinks that's really the way that they should be. And in that sense, the world, the cosmos at large, is not instrumental in providing something for him that he doesn't already have. It doesn't exist to fill up some kind of hole in him, to meet some need. Instead, the world is an overflow from him, an overflow that shows how rich, how full he really is. Or as Romans 1 puts it, God creates in order to give a visible representation of his invisible self so that what he makes expresses who he is. It's an expression of his life, his energy, his power, his creativity, his beauty, his care. In short, what God makes expresses his glory. So when you look at the universe, it's a very small, tiny window onto someone who is much grander, wilder, more gentle, more stunning than anything that you've ever seen or experienced. He is the creator. He's the source of his own life. He does not need anyone to fill him up or to satisfy him or to entertain him. God is endlessly happy. He's the source of happiness. He's where happiness comes from. He's the source of joy. He creates to express joy and to share joy with what he creates, which is to say then that he creates out of love. He does not create in order to get love. He doesn't have that need from what he creates. He creates to share love with those beings that he creates. And he wants then to be related to on the basis of love, on the basis of trusting him. That's the foundation of a relationship with this God, that everything that you say to him, everything you think about with him, everything that you do, every way that you engage the world that he's made, that that all is to be motivated by our love for him, that how we live is an expression of our love to this God who's already loved us by creating us and creating all of these things, that expresses love and not something else. And you know that our relationship with God could express something else. For instance, you can live a perfectly moral life, one that follows absolutely everything that God says, one that looks like it obeys him, but you can live that life not because you love him and you love how he thinks, 
but because you're afraid of him. Afraid of what he might do to you if you don't obey. That's not a relationship that's founded on love. It's founded on fear. Or you could try to base your relationship on greed. On thinking that if you live a life that he likes, then he'll give you what you want. You'll be well off. You'll have a career that you love. You'll have a super hot spouse. You'll have children who adore you. You will go on fantastic and exciting adventures and relationships if you toe the line with God. A lot of people live that way. It's also not a relationship with God based on love. It's a relationship that's based on greed, on thinking that you can get things from him. Or you might decide, I will obey God when I see why I should, when he gives me reasons that I like, that show me that this is a better way of living than what I was thinking. It's also not a relationship that's based on love, based on trusting that whatever God says is always best, even if you don't understand it. That's a relationship that's based on whether or not God fits into your understanding of what life is all about, where you doubt and mistrust him unless he says and does things that then agree with you. And so this is where God then starts his interactions with the human race. He lays out the, the two options for us. How are we going to relate to him? Will we relate to him on the basis of love? Will we trust him? Or are we going to trust something else instead of him? Will we live out of love for him, being filled up by his love? Or are we going to live out of something else? That's what you see going on here in Genesis. God comes to Adam, Genesis 2.16. Eve is not on the scene yet. Adam is surrounded by abundant fruit trees that will feed him, fill him, in a garden made just for him. And God says to him, 2.16, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And I love the way that Rachel Gilson unpacks this in her book, Born Again This Way. Our CGs read through this last year. You may remember her comments. She points out how odd this command is, how it doesn't really have a reason behind it. And she hypothesizes. She says, you know, if God had told Adam and Eve, by the way, don't murder each other, that would be a command with a reason that would have made sense to them, a reason that they probably could have figured out that that was not a good thing to do, that it would not lead to a good life for that other person, would not lead to making good societies. That would have been a command that made sense. But what God says is, don't eat this one fruit. To which Gilson asks why. There's nothing morally wrong about eating fruit. Sort of tongue-in-cheek, she says, even vegans eat fruit. There's nothing inherently wrong with it that they would then be able to discern and go, okay, that's the reason why God says don't eat it. No reasonable reason that they could come to in their own limited understanding. In fact, actually, it's, it's just the opposite. And the serpent points this out. He says in chapter 3, the fruit looks really good. It's desirable. It doesn't look like it'll kill you. How do you know it's not good to eat? There's no data here. No one has ever tried eating this before. That means Adam and Eve can't go on past experience to guide them. 
All of which means that there is no reason not to eat it except God said so. That's the only reason they have to go on. God said, if you eat it, it will kill you. Even if it doesn't look like it, go eat something else instead. Which means that the only reason then that you would obey this command is if what? If you trust him. If you trust the command giver. If you trust God, if you love him, if you believe that he has your best interests at heart. And so, in effect, God is telling Adam and Eve, I'm not going to tell you all the reasons all the time why you should listen to me. Because that's not the essence of love. Instead, I want a relationship with you where you look at everything that I've given you. You look at your life, you look at each other, you look at everything around you that you need to sustain and enjoy life. You look at all of that and you realize that says something about me. It says how much I love you. How much I will only ever do what is in your best interests. I want you to look at all of that, come to that conclusion, and then relate to me knowing that because I love you, I will only ever tell you what is best for you. That I'm not only the self-existent creator who knows what is best for everything in my universe, I'm the relational God who will come into your world, who cares about what's best for you more than you ever could. And I am the one person in the universe that you can always count on to tell you what is in your best interests. That's the relationship that God has in mind with us. One where he loves us and we trust his love. And we love him back by listening to what he says, taking, by taking him seriously. That's point one, the foundation of a relationship with God. Point two, here's the temptation to change the relationship, to base it on something else. That's what Satan proposes to Eve in the garden. Now, I want to take a brief aside here and recognize that you and I live in the modern world. And it's a world that argues that spiritual beings are largely mythical. That people used to believe in gods and goddesses, but we understand that those were personifications of human values, human vices, that they were made up stories trying to provide a rational understanding of the moral universe, but what? We're, we're moderns. We've progressed beyond those more primitive beliefs. And so ideas of angels, demons, devils, the devil as a literal, real being of supreme evil, those, those, those are not real. They're part of a more superstitious age that we've grown out of. And so, for some of us, when we come to a passage like this, maybe all of us, it can be uncomfortable, maybe embarrassing, to read something like this, to spend so much time meditating on it. We certainly don't want our friends and neighbors to know that we might think or believe this. So what do we do with this? How do we live as moderns with a passage like this? I want to suggest that we do with this, like everything else we do, everything else we engage in the Christian life, we have to go back to Christ. And we have to see what Jesus thought and how he thought. And when you do that, you discover Jesus firmly believed in the natural world, one in which you could talk about normal, everyday kinds of things. You could talk about sowing and reaping crops, spinning wool, tending sheep. You could talk about birds. It was a world that was deeply normal, natural. 
And Jesus also firmly believed that there were times when supernatural, more than natural events, would break into the normal everyday life. And so you come across places where Jesus will reference things like Jonah being swallowed by a whale for three days, and he uses that to explain what will happen to him in the tomb. And he treats that like a real account. Or when he's talking about God's future judgment of the world, he references what it was like when God judged the world in Noah's day, when he sent the flood. Or he talks about these early passages in Genesis. For instance, in Mark 10, 10, 6, Jesus is responding to a question about divorce, and he says that while there are some allowances for it, that that was not God's original intention. And then he says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He reaches back into Genesis And he pulls out two quotations, one from chapter 1, God made them male and female, one from chapter 2, therefore man shall leave his father and mother, and he bases his conclusion on these two passages. In other words, Jesus treats Genesis 1 and 2 as real accounts. One's a little more poetic, the other is prosaic, but he treats them as equally real doesn't treat them as fictional, doesn't treat them as mythological attempts to explain how human beings got here. He treats them as accurate accounts of God's active, supernatural involvement in this world. Or, in John chapter 8, Jesus talks about the devil and references what he's been like, and he uses Genesis language here, what the devil has been like from the beginning. That's Genesis language. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jesus takes that language and uses it to talk about the devil. John 8, 44, that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Jesus treats the devil as a real personal being, committed to lying from the beginning, which we hear about in Genesis 3. Why would you take the devil seriously? Because Jesus did. Settle that issue first. Who is Jesus really? And then that will tell you what to believe about Genesis 3. If you read the gospel accounts and decide that the accounts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are just clever made-up stories, You read them and you think, well, Jesus isn't real, or that, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus, but then other people came along, they made stuff up about him. If that's what you think, it doesn't matter what Jesus thinks. If what we know of Jesus is basically a fairy tale, then who cares what he thinks about Genesis or anything else? But if you read the Gospels, and you realize that over and over and over and over, like we saw throughout our study in the book of Mark, if you see that no one would write these things unless they really happened, unless Jesus really is God come to earth in a body who suffered, died, was buried, and then rose again, if that's where the evidence leads, and I'd suggest to you study the Gospels, you realize that it does. If that's where the evidence leads, then Jesus is the Lord, and you believe what he says because he's the Lord, and also because 
no one's ever loved you like this before. You believe him, why? Because you trust him based on what he's done for you. Decide who Jesus is on the evidence that you're given. That will settle the question of what is or is not true. Jesus believes Satan is true and that the early accounts of Genesis tell you reliable things about him. That's why I believe them too. So what do you see in Genesis chapter 3? Satan sidles up to Eve in verse 1 and quietly invites her to be skeptical of God, to distrust God and to distrust his take on things. Satan asks, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Hear the skepticism? Did God actually say that? Really? That, 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 that you can't eat from any of the trees? <sighs> Eve, that, that sounds a little harsh uncaring, put you here, put lots of food right in front of you, but won't let you have any? Did I get that right? Did he actually say that? It's a distraction. Satan knows what God really said, but it's an opening gambit that even if Eve disagrees, Satan has now sowed the seed that says it's okay. You can be skeptical. Distrust is one valid option among many, one valid option when you're dealing with God. I know that you have no reason for distrust, but it's an option. We can, we can talk about this. Eve responds, verse 2, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. She corrects Satan. No, it's not just, it, it, it's just one tree that we can't eat from. But then she does something dangerous. She embellishes, adds something to what God said, that even touching the tree is forbidden. And you can understand how she'd get there, right? If it's dangerous to eat it, then you shouldn't even touch it. Stay away from it. The logic sounds really good, but it's not helpful. Because the issue isn't touching. The issue is trusting. And Eve is trying to add an external fence to what God said. If I don't touch it, then I can't eat it. But the battle for Eve is not in her hand. Because what she does with her hand simply expresses her heart. The battle is for her heart. And that's where Satan attacks. He moves in, verse 4, You will not surely die the liar part that Jesus says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want you to see carefully how this temptation works. He's obviously using pride here. Eve, you'll be like God. Think who wouldn't want that? But notice how he gets there. He tells her, eat the fruit, and your eyes will be opened. What's he implying there? Hey, um, Eve, you probably don't know this, poor Eve, but your eyes are not open. You can't see. You're left out. You're on the outside. You don't really know what's going on. You ever feel like that? Like everyone around you is talking over your head or talking about stuff that you don't understand? How do you feel at those times? Kind of small? like you're less than? 
I was talking with a guy this past week. He was at work, and someone was showing him how to do something for the very first time. Somebody else stops over to see what they're doing and asks, have you ever done this before? No criticism implied, just a question of information. Have you ever done this before? And my friend who's learning this brand new skill that he's never done before tells me how tempted he was to lie, to fudge by saying something like, well, not exactly like this. And I know what that feels like, to, to not want to admit that I don't know what everybody else is talking about or what everybody else already knows how to do. I really feel like this when I'm around people who are in the same profession and they're all talking about something. It's just a normal part of their life. You ever have that experience? They're using words and concepts that I have no way of knowing, but I'm kind of included in the conversation. And it is so hard in that moment to, for me to say, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what that means. So much more tempting to nod stupidly. And, and like, like, oh, sure, I know what we're talking about, the thing that you spent years and years studying that I didn't. Now, in my experience, no one is ever upset at having to explain to me what's going on. I feel bad asking. I don't want to show my ignorance. I don't want to admit that my eyes are not open. Satan says to Eve, that's what God wants for you. He likes you ignorant, prefers that. He knows when you eat of it, you'll be like him. What's the implication? That's why he told you not to. Satan's implying here, Eve, sorry to tell you this. God's holding out on you. I know right now that you're doing everything you can to be good, but you're living by blind trust, blind faith, and there's no reason to trust him. There's every reason not to. God's keeping you back from what you could be, but if you stop trusting him, your life will be so much better. That's Satan's road in. That's why the temptation grabs. Your eyes are closed now, Eve, but they don't have to be. Just one quick snack. Problem solved. Then your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the hook, the surface appeal to pride. Be in the know. Be like God. It covers the hidden appeal, which is much worse. The hidden appeal is not be like God. It's replace God. Take his place. Because the real issue here is, who are you going to trust? Remember, nobody has ever tried eating one of these fruits before. There is no data to go on. It is strictly a question of authority. Do you think that God is the best guide here, even if what he says seems like there's no good reason for it? Or do you believe that someone else is a better guide, especially if they have a good reason, or, or at least a reason that appeals to you? God's had his say, Satan's had his, and now who's making the decision? It's Eve. That's the real appeal to her. You are in charge. You don't have to submit to someone else's authority. You don't have to listen if you don't want to. Instead, you make the call. You be the judge. We still struggle with that appeal today. It is so easy to and tempting to reverse the order of creation when God says something that you don't like. 
So instead of you being under the all-wise, all-knowing, holy creator, loving creator, the one that you should trust, believing that he knows what is best, instead you forget all of that and you stand over him and you evaluate his words and his thoughts on the basis of whether they appeal to you or not, with whether you like his sexual ethic, with his belief that male and female is good, with how he organizes and runs his church, with how he tells you to be generous with your time and money, not spending them all on yourself, how he tells you to give yourself to caring for those who are poor and disenfranchised. You evaluate his words on the basis of whether or not they appeal to you, which does what? It puts you in the driver's seat. You replace him in your life. You make yourself the final arbiter of what is right and good. It's the same thing that God Satan, right? Even though God created him, Satan wasn't happy being a creature, didn't want to live under God's constraints, and so he opted out, deciding that he was big enough to replace God's authority with his own. It's no wonder, then, that he would try that same temptation with human beings to suggest that it really was possible for them, with zero consequences, to step out of God's shadow and make their own decisions, to rule their own destinies, to be like God by replacing him. That's point two, the temptation. Don't trust God, trust yourself instead. So what happens, point three? When given their choice in a world that was full to overflowing, where there were no needs, our first ancestors chose not to trust the one who gave them paradise. They both ate, but they did so for different reasons. Eve is drawn away. She's enticed, verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Why did she eat? She saw that it was good, that it was a delight to look at, that it was desirable to make her wise. She's taken in by what she saw and by what she wanted. And she acknowledges that before God. He asks her, verse 13, what is this that you have done? And she tells him, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And God does not disagree. She and God are on the same page. She's been tricked into believing something was true when it was not. Tricked into believing that she could ignore God's words and there would be no consequences. More, tricked into believing that ignoring God would actually lead to a better life. She was sold a lie, and she bought into it. Didn't see it for what it was. She was deceived. It's possible that Adam could also have been deceived. Look at the end of verse 6 again. Eve took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Do you see it? Where's Adam been all this time? He's been with her, standing right there. During the entire time, he's heard everything that Satan said, but he's not taken in by it. When God asks him why he ate, Adam doesn't believe his eating on the serpent or anything that the serpent says. 
he blames Eve. He tells God, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Now, most of the time when we look at this passage, we focus on his blame shifting. That from his perspective, if Eve wasn't there, he would not have done anything wrong. He passes the buck to her, doesn't take responsibility. Most of the time we focus on that, and guys, we need to see that. But there's more to see. Notice here what he does not say. He doesn't say that he was tricked, that he didn't know what he was doing. Eve was deceived. There's a sense here that Adam is acting with a different motivation, not fooled, which means worse. This is straight-up rebellion, actively choosing to ignore God's voice so that he can do what he wants to. God agrees with Adam's assessment of those motivations. He says to Adam, verse 17, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. God says to him, because you listened to your wife, you didn't listen to me. You chose your wife over me. You chose her voice over my voice. She was fooled. You rebelled. It was an issue of trust and you chose not to trust me. And because you didn't, because in that moment, it's because you forgot what you knew of me. That as the creator, I know and understand my world and what it needs far more than you can. You forgot that, and so you stopped living well long before the fruit ever touched your lips. So you go back again into Genesis 1.28. God gave human beings a charge there to fill the earth and subdue it, And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is God's best plan for this world, that human beings would have dominion over it. They were to rule over this earth as God's representatives, to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. There in the garden is a living thing that moves on the earth, the serpent, that is not living in line with how God made the world. It's speaking against God. It's a living thing on this earth, which means it needs to have dominion exercised over it by an image of God who is God's representative on this earth. Eve is fooled. She doesn't see the danger. Adam is not fooled. He sees it and he does nothing about it. This is the moment as God's representative for him to take dominion to take whatever steps he has to, to end this evil and to remove it, to rebuke the serpent, call him a liar, demand that he stop. And if the snake does not stop, then reach out his hand and grab a stick and make the snake stop. He needs to use his voice, remind his wife of what God has said. He needs to take his hand, reach it out, take the fruit from her before she can eat it. And then throw that away. Adam was given the authority by God to rule, to have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth for the sake of bringing everything in line with God. And he does none of those things. 
God chose to start the human race with Adam as the one who would best represent all the rest of us, not because we voted for him, but because God knew that Adam would represent our race collectively better than anyone else could. And so the way that God, uh, sorry, the way that Adam responded to God's command would count not for him alone, but for all of those who would be organically connected to him, for all of those who would come from him. So when Adam reaches out his hand to rebel and not obey, he's not the only one who dies on that day, but he plunges the rest of the human race into spiritual death. That's what Romans 19 is getting at when it says that by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. It's talking about Adam there. It's talking about the consequences of what he did in the garden. That Romans 5.12, that it was through his action, his sin, that death entered this world. That he killed himself spiritually. And in that same moment, spiritually murdered all the rest of us so that we are now born with a heart that doesn't trust God, that does not automatically believe the best about him. And it's that spiritual death that then leads to all the other problems. It leads to blaming others. Eve blames a serpent. Adam blames his wife. In that moment, we don't trust that there is a God who could still love us, who could love the real us with all of our failings. We forget in that moment that God's essence is love, that he really could handle the real us in all of our mess. But we don't trust his love, and so we can't stand to look at the real us, which means somebody else has to be held responsible for what we did. It's not really my fault I was tricked by this one. It's not really my fault I was just listening to this other one. We now look outward, and we believe that we would not have done what we did if that other person hadn't done what they did. We make a fundamental mistake. We think that the biggest source of our problems is outside of ourselves, when the source of our sin is inside ourselves. And so we say, well, if the snake wasn't in the garden, if this woman wasn't here, I would not have sinned think the source of our badness is outside of us, and we forget that those outside persons are not the source. Yes, they impact us. They tempt us. Sometimes they tempt us so strongly we feel like we have to give in. But those are only temptations that we act on. Why? Because they find a home inside of us. There's something inside of us that gets hooked by those voices from outside something that's the real cause of why we do the wrong things that we do. We overlook that, however, and we attack each other. We blame each other rather than look at ourselves. Spiritual death leads to attacking others and to feeling shame, verse 7, where we didn't before. Shame that also is relational, why we try to hide from each other, <laughs> even if the best that we can do is sow fig leaves together. We hide from each other because confessing when you've done something wrong is even harder than confessing that you're ignorant. Why is that? It's because it's not just that you have done wrong, 
but you feel somehow that now you yourself are wrong. You know that somehow what you've done wrong is attached to your identity, regardless of how much you try to blame others, that somehow it's now attached to you, that you haven't just done wrong, but you are wrong, and you know that you shouldn't be wrong. And so you feel ashamed of your own self. And you realize that nobody has to teach you how to feel shame. You're born knowing what that's like. Yes, people can ramp that up. They can ramp it to ungodly extremes. They can make you feel shame about things you should not feel ashamed of. But they're ramping up something that's already there. You're born knowing how to feel shame and born hating the feeling. So when you do wrong, when you demonstrate that there is something really bad deep inside, you don't want anyone else to know. You try to keep others from seeing it. When we forget that our God could still love us even after all the things that we've done, it creates all these other horizontal problems. We attack each other, we hide from each other. And we treat God just like we treat his images. We don't want to come to him in confession. We hide from him. Look again at these two human beings. They have never known anything of God's wrath or his displeasure. But now immediately, verse 8, when they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's all it took. Just one sin. And these two human beings who have only ever known pleasure, only ever known delight in God's company, want nothing to do with him. They're afraid of him. They know instinctively inside that they no longer have the same relationship that they once did. That something is now badly broken between them. And they know that there's a penalty for doing wrong, for being wrong. For misusing the life that he breathed into them. There's a penalty for not listening to the God who gave them ears to hear his words. A penalty for not using the mind that he gave them to understand what he's saying. They know that, and so they hide, they run. <laughs> but there's a problem. Where can you go in God's universe to get away from God? They're now living in spiritual insanity. They have sown his fig leaves around themselves. They are hiding in his bushes, hoping that he won't be able to find them think, how does that make any sense? It doesn't. This is what sin does to us. They still have a mind that God gave them. It doesn't work any longer the way it should. The whole story is tragic. They had everything that you could ever want, and it wasn't enough. And so wanting more, they ruined it all until point four, God steps in and responds with grace. I would like you to take this chapter and study it, maybe this afternoon, maybe tomorrow, sometime this week. Make a note, please. Notice all of the ways that God responds with grace, all of the ways that he doesn't have to, all of the ways that they don't deserve. Notice first that while they die spiritually, they don't die physically. They should have, right? God promised, Genesis 2.17, that on the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. That would be totally just for them just to be gone, 
They have ruined the whole point of creation to reflect the glory of the invisible God. They have broken all of that that God worked so hard to make. Justice would demand that they are removed once and for all from his world, and they aren't. They can hear his voice. That's grace. Or the fact that he comes looking for them doesn't make them come to him is grace especially given how he comes. He comes asking a question. It's a ridiculous question, verse 9. Where are you? God's asking, where are you? He knows where they are. They can hear the sound of his voice. He's asking the question when he's standing around them. He asks an unnecessary question that he does not need the answer to. The only thing that question does is let them know that he's looking for them, that he still wants them, that he's searching for them. That's grace. And then he asks open-ended questions. Verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Verse 13, what is this that you have done? Why is he asking these things? He's not lecturing, not condemning, not reading them the riot act. He knows the answers already. That means he's not asking for his sake. The answers will not add to his understanding, which means he's asking for their sake, giving them the opportunity to take responsibility for what they've done, to come out into the light where he is, to stop playing hide-and-seek and to work with him. He's giving them another chance to come out into his world, to relate to him to reestablish relationship with them. He's communicating that he still loves them. That's grace. There are consequences to what they've done. But study these first three chapters, and you realize that he does not take away their primary purpose or any of his provision for them. They can still eat. That's grace. God is under no obligation to feed them. Never was, isn't now. But he does so anyway, despite their disobeying him. They can still eat. They can still work. They still have meaning and purpose. He doesn't take that away. They can still multiply, still fill the earth with more images of God, despite the fact that all of those who will be born will not trust the one who gives them life. It's grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Clothes them with animal skins, better clothes than they made for themselves, which costs him. Those are his animals that he has to kill in order to clothe our parents. He provides for them at his own expense, and he notices that there's a problem, verse 22, that Adam could now reach out his hand and take hold of the tree of life and eat and live forever, that he could make his current condition permanent, that he could live forever with skepticism and distrust toward God. And so God sends them out of the garden, verse 24, sets an angel with a flaming sword at the entrance that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What is God doing? Kicking them out of their home? No. He's guarding the way to the tree of life, guarding the tree but not removing the tree, not removing that there will be a tree that's a way to life. 
the time is not yet ready for them to have the tree. But it's implicit here, the time is coming. The time when another Adam would come, person whom Romans calls the second Adam. Another Adam that God would also appoint to be our representative, someone who we did not choose for ourselves, but one that God would choose for us. The one that God predicted would come in Genesis 3.15, when he told the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In essence, it's like he turns to our first parents and says, you chose to build an alliance against me with the serpent, but I love you too much to let that alliance stand. I'm not going to wait for you to get tired of each other, for you to realize that he's a liar. I will break that alliance. I will put enmity between you and him, because I want you back. And God promises that the second Adam will do what the first one failed to do, to crush the life of the snake and bring an end to his evil forever and to open the way back to the tree of life. Romans 5.19 contrasts the first and second Adams, contrasts the consequences of what they each did. It says, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. As Dr. Jude Davis has pointed out, the contrast could not be more stark. Adam comes naked to a live tree, reaches out his hand to take food from his wife, his bride. And spiritually murders all of his children, bringing death into the world. Jesus comes to a dead tree, is stripped naked and murdered so that he can reach out his hand to his people, to his bride, not to take food from his bride, but to give food to her, to feed her spiritually, to give her spiritual life, to keep nourishing that life in her so that she lives with him forever in a home that he's now making for them both. This is a God that you can trust, regardless of whatever it is that you've done. Trust him. Trust his love. Don't hide and come to him. Our Lord and our God, you have outdone yourself with redemption. You have taken our rebellion, purged it from us, so that we can now stand before you pure and holy, righteous, and have a friendship with you again that we don't deserve. Lord, thank you. It is with glad and sincere hearts that we come to you and end this time by praising you.